Welcome to Desire Made Real, a Discovery of Witches podcast, where we recap every episode of the television show spoiler free. I'm one of your hosts, Mandy Kay, and when I'm not talking about Matthew and Diana, I'm talking about movies on my other podcast, Pop Culturally Deprived. And I'm your other host, Caitlin, and when I'm not talking about a Discovery of Witches, I'm podcasting about Lord of the Rings on So You Want to Read Tolkien. A Discovery of Witches is a new television show by British network Sky One based on the All Souls trilogy by Deborah Harkness. While it's already aired in many parts of the world, it dropped in North America today, January 17th, 2019, on the streaming services Shudder and Sundance Now. It has already been renewed for seasons two and three. Yay! Yay! Each week, we'll recap the episode spoiler-free, and we'll also be joined by our friend, Dr. Anya, an evolutionary biologist, who will talk about the science of the show. We'll also include a segment at the end to discuss the books, how well the adaptation works, and we will likely dive into some spoilers there, but don't worry, we'll give you plenty of warning before we get there. Episode 1 was directed by Juan Carlos Medina and written by Kate Brooke. And I did just want to mention that most of the writers and directors on this series are women, and most, if not all, of the producers are women, and I really like that about this show, and I feel like you can really tell that about the show, too. Yeah, I think it's really great to take something that's had so much hype built up around it and have like a writer's room and, and producers that are just full of women and not a bunch of old white men. Yeah. And I think some of the, like a good chunk of the higher up crew, like the director of photography and that sort of thing are also women. That's fantastic. I yeah. didn't actually look that stuff up, so I'm really glad you did. Sure. Looked it up. Yep. Didn't just sort of find it on social media. <laughs> I put work into that. Absolutely. Of course you did. Yeah. All right. Well, let's dive right into the episode, which was fantastic, by the way. Mm -hmm. So we begin in Oxford during the autumn equinox per the Chiron on the screen. So I had to actually look up autumn equinox because I don't know when the equinoxes actually are equinoxes. Is that how you say that? I th I think in our North American accents, we usually say equinox, but the British accents, is all, accents I'll say equinox. Interesting. In the show. So, so my mind now definitely thinks equinox because... Nobody really says that on a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. Nobody says that, which is why I had to look up what it was. And it turns out it's generally called the September equinox, and it is the moment when the sun appears to cross the celestial equator heading southward. So due to differences between the calendar year and the tropical year, the September equinox can occur at any time from the 21st to the 24th day of September. So we know that this takes place somewhere during that five-day time span. It is usually the first day of fall. Okay. See, I didn't know that either. Yeah. The show opens with uh, Matthew and his wonderful monologue is the word I'm looking for there. Uh, that starts off with once the world was full of wonders and goes on from there. And then he does mention that his father used to say, In every ending, there is a new beginning. And that is a line from the second book, near the very, very end, when a character we haven't met yet in the show asks Matthew something that his father used to say, and he replies with the Latin, which I'm actually probably not going to read, because my Latin pronunciation, mm-mm. 
but it does mean in every ending there is a new beginning and i just like that they're already bringing in some stuff from book two yeah i think that's fantastic it definitely sets the tone that the show is going to try to be bigger than the books a little bit more robust Mm -hmm. in the world building i guess and i like that we start off with matthew because it opens up the show because the book was just from diana's point of view Mm -hmm. so having a very clearly starting off from matthew's point of view there you know changes it up a bit yes definitely although we do see diana row along the river beneath him mm-hmm. yep yep and that that's the first time we see them and then right from that opening scene in the fog we go to diana in her room getting ready sort of frantically and there's a good song playing in the background and which is the song of home written which is written by the show's composer rob lane and it was written specifically for the show because they couldn't find a song that worked for every single sort of beat that they had to hit here and that it had to sort of be frantic while she's getting ready and then kind of slow and sad while she was looking at the photographs of her parents and then pick up again when she was on the bike Mm -hmm. So Rob Lane wrote it very quickly, which is why it's also not a full song. It is just what we get in the show, which is a little annoying when you're listening to it on the soundtrack, because I kind of wanted that full three-minute song. (laughs) But it is only that. Yeah. One minute. I was listening to it thinking, wow, this is a really good song. I want to know what it is. And so I pulled out my cell phone and I did the Shazam thing to find it and was astonished to find that it was called Ashmole 782. So, of course, it was written just for the show. And like you, I absolutely wish that we had the full song because it's, I mean, it's such a teaser because it is so good. Yeah. It's its exactly my, my like, taste in music, too, mm-hmm. which is really nice for me. Um, but if anyone wants to know more about Rob Lane and how he composed all the music, I do recommend uh, giving a listen to another podcast the All Souls podcast, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where uh, they interviewed Rob Lane, and it's really great and really clear to see that Rob Lane loves what he does and uh, is just a big old nerd about music, and it's great. Yeah, we'll go ahead and put a link to that episode in the show notes so you don't have to search for it. So then Diana's on her bike going through the wonderful, adorable streets of Oxford. Makes Caitlin very much miss England, but that's fine. And we see her do magic for the first time. Because, surprise, surprise, Diana's a witch. I actually really like this moment. You know, because not only does it show us that she's a witch, it shows us that she's a reluctant witch or, I, gosh, I don't want to say incapable, but what's another word that's like incapable? Unpracticed? Unpracticed. I like that. Because... She gets off her bike and she drops her papers and it's windy outside. So they just fly everywhere and she immediately panics and just yells, stop. And they magically order themselves into this neat little pile. And you can see this look on her face of sheer relief that she didn't lose her work, but also panic because she just accidentally did magic in public. Mm -hmm. And her acting there is just beautiful because you can see all of that. And she said one word, stop. And you get those feelings of the panic and the relief all at one time. And it just tells you so much about her character. She didn't mean to do that. I like it. 
I like it too. And again, yeah, it was a good, good acting. And then she goes to give a talk at Oxford. And this is where we actually learn a little bit more about Diana as a character. She's not English. She is a visiting research fellow from America. She is a science historian who has tenure at Yale. And they go out of their way to tell us that she is one of the youngest ever to have been awarded that distinction. And then we learn that her topic of study is actually alchemy and that she has done a lot of research into this field. She's giving a whole talk on it. She is getting ready to be offered um, a, a faculty position at Oxford or potentially, you know, be on the shortlist because she does this work on studying the history of alchemy. And that got me thinking that most people probably don't know what alchemy is. And so I think this is a great time to actually uh, go to Dr. Anya to learn more about alchemy and how it's the precursor to modern chemistry and all of the fun things that go along with it. Let's do it. Hi, everybody. I am Dr. Anya. Uh, I have a PhD in evolutionary biology. And I was really interested in participating in this podcast um, because I'm super interested in the way that science is portrayed in popular media and academia in general. And so I read the book off of a recommendation of some friends, and I thought it was really fascinating. Um, and so I was super excited for the show as well. I also have some expertise in rowing, which isn't that important beyond this first episode, but thought I would throw that in there as well. We learn up front, you know, relatively at the beginning of episode one, that Diana's discipline is alchemy. And prior to reading this book, watching this show, really my only like encounter with the word alchemy was in Harry Potter. So can you explain what alchemy is? Is this actually a real discipline? Would somebody study the history of alchemy the way Diana does? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say Diana's field isn't really alchemy. Her field is probably the history and philosophy of science, um, which is, it's a little bit of a niche subject. Not all universities uh, have a department of the history and philosophy of science. It's something that a few universities really specialize in. But yeah, so her topic within the history and philosophy of science would be alchemy. And alchemy is basically a philosophical and proto-scientific tradition uh, that's been practiced for millennia on three different continents, so across Europe, Africa, and Asia. Um, so it's, it's a really broad field, and basically its goals are to purify and perfect certain objects and elements. And specifically, it's well known um, that like alchemists were you know, trying to turn things into gold. So basically like, turn certain elements into other elements. And so it's actually related to the modern discipline of chemistry. And they actually even have the same roots, uh, alchemy and chemistry. It comes from the Greek term chemia, which means to fuse or cast a metal. Um, and then alchemy is the Arabic form of that. Cause you know, like a lot of Arabic words have, um, they start with the syllable al, so like algebra, alchemy. Yeah, so alchemy is much older than modern chemistry, but they actually overlapped a little bit in history. 
And what we think of as modern chemical science actually borrowed a lot of ideas and techniques that were developed earlier in alchemy. And so modern chemistry is, instead of trying to like perfect or transform elements, um, it's more interested in the scientific study of different elements and compounds and describing uh, their composition, structure, properties, and behavior and specifically chemical reactions from one substance to another substance. And so based on modern chemistry, we know that there are like pure elements that are like the smallest uh, subunits of matter, basically atoms. And then atoms can be combined into other uh, molecules, chemicals, and substances. Um, whereas like alchemy didn't necessarily have that perspective. And so a lot of alchemy's goals are actually like pretty impossible, right? Because in order to change one element into another element, you have to change the number of protons. And and that's just basically, an, it's not technically impossible, but it's basically impossible. Like you need a particle accelerator to get enough energy to do something like that. Like messing with the nucleus of an atom is just so hard. <laughs> So what a lot of alchemy was trying to do, we actually can do it nowadays using modern physics, basically, um, but you need like a billion dollar particle accelerator. So if, um, if we can do alchemy now, how long until we get the elixir of life? Oh, well, okay. So like, <laughs> alchemy is um, philosophical and scientific kind of fused together. So, so like, obviously, um, we're not going to be able to create an elixir of life to create immortality like that's physically impossible what i was talking about more is uh, dash my hopes yeah <laughs> alchemy's goals of sort of like being able to create gold or turn one element into another element like we can kind of do that it's like very expensive and energetically costly um and so we would it's like not really done on an industrial scale hmm. but we kind of just do it for the love of science and to prove that we can. But it would have absolutely been impossible at the time that alchemy was being Oh, formed. yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's only been possible for like the past couple decades. Maybe maybe a little bit longer than that, but certainly since like the 60s or 70s. Mm -hmm. Particle physics is not really my expertise. Um so I have friends that are that work at accelerators, but I don't know the field in depth enough to know uh, all about the history of how that field developed. Right. So I'll have to talk to one of them about becoming immortal. Yes. Yes. Great. But I do, I do think it's really interesting, right? The way that sort of like in the popular conception, we think about, you know, like science and pseudoscience and they're like completely separate and, and don't really fuse together that much. But, you know, it turns out that what we think of as modern scientific chemistry owes so much of its techniques and ideas to alchemy. And, you know, if you asked a chemist in the 40s and 50s, like, what was the difference between alchemy and chemistry, they would have said, you know, like, oh, well, we can't turn elements into other elements. But like, now we can. So at this point, like chemistry has or at really physics has come so far that we can sort of achieve these aims of alchemy that seemed impossible before. Interesting. 
Yeah. And so there's actually um, a Smithsonian article that you guys can link in the show notes that talks about the sort of resurgence of history of science scholarship regarding alchemy uh, that happened in the 1980s. And it's super fascinating. And you can see that Deborah Harkness was drawing on a lot of real alchemy for her book. And there's one quote in particular that I thought really illustrated that. Um, The author says, "Uh, Historians of science began deciphering alchemical texts, which wasn't easy. The alchemists, obsessed with secrecy, deliberately described their experiments in metaphorical terms laden with obscure references to mythology and history. For instance, text that describes a cold dragon who creeps in and out of the caves was code for saltpeter, which is potassium nitrate, a crystalline substance found on cave walls that tastes cool on the tongue. Deborah Harkness, she's actually a real professor of history, and she teaches European history and history of science at the University of Southern California. And she's published two books of nonfiction books, one of which is on alchemy. And so, yeah, she's basically like (laughs) drawing a lot on her personal experience um, and expertise with alchemy and sort of feeding that into Diana's research interests and the the plot points of her book. Um, Yeah, in general, I thought the portrayal of academia in the show was really spot on especially like her interactions with Jillian Mm -hmm. um, early on. And that's sort of like uh, faculty jobs are just like really few and far between and really hard to get. And so there's a lot of, of kind of like competition and career jealousy and awkwardness. And it's like, even, you know, like you don't have to want it. It's just like there and kind of unavoidable when you meet somebody and you're just sort of like, Oh, it's been a few years. Like, you know, the last time I talked, you were doing this postdoc here. Like, what are you currently doing? And then when they're like, oh, well, I'm actually, like, kind of between stuff right now. Or, you know, like, (laughs) I'm on my third postdoc. Like, yeah, I just, that was, it just, like, made my heart ache a little bit with familiarity um, when they were doing all of that. Yeah, I did find it a little interesting or just, like, a little weird that, you know, she like gave this talk that everyone clearly loved. And then they were like, oh, you can just like write up, you know, like the paper's almost done, right? And she was like, yep, almost done. And then she's like, literally going back to the library and reading like 15 new books that she's never read before. Like, that's not really how the academic workflow goes. Like, if you're presenting an hour-long seminar about a topic, it's, like, pretty complete. And she should be able to write it up without doing that much more research. You know, like, if she was able to do the talk without any of the Ashmole text before, she should, like, all her Ashmole research should be for, like, her next paper or, her you know, her next book or something. I don't know. Right. I will say in the book she did not give a talk. Mm, I see. She, right. She so I think that was just there to visually introduce alchemy to the viewers. I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and I think overall it worked. And if you, I think if you like aren't super familiar with the academic workflow and and like how long it takes to put together a paper, it wouldn't have stuck out. But it did just kind of feel a little weird to me. I can see that. And then I had one other final thing that I wanted to talk about um, with regard to the, like, 
academic-y and science-y parts of, of the show, which was that my first reaction when watching the episode was, I can't believe she's handling this like amazing ancient text with her bare hands. Um, like, don't you have to wear gloves for that? And so I sent a message to our friend Paul Moffat, who is uh, at that Paul Moffat on Twitter, because um, he's a, a medieval literature specialist faculty. And I was asked, and so I asked him about that. And he said that actually, you know, the standard of a few decades ago was to wear gloves when handling ancient manuscripts. Um, but now uh, people tend to actually just use their bare hands. Um, you just, you like wash your hands right beforehand and make sure that they're like very clean and dry. And it turns out that actually, because when you wear gloves, it sort of decreases your manual dexterity, it actually makes you more likely to tear or rip a page. And so they're more worried about that than they are about you getting, you know, like oils from your hands on it. Um, so the trend now is basically to not wear gloves when working with ancient texts. Uh, and Teresa Palmer, the actress, has mentioned that she did some training on handling ancient manuscripts. Oh, really? That's so cool. Yeah. I thought that maybe at the end of these segments, I would kind of like go through um, what we've learned about the world building and the science that's driving the main plot of the book. Um, so then maybe, you know, we can kind of evaluate how much it makes sense and like how well we think the world building itself holds together. And so from this episode, basically what I took away is that um, there's three types of human-like creatures, the witches, the vampires, and the demons. Um, the vampires are having trouble siring, and we don't know why. And then Matthew thinks that Ashmole 782 might help them figure out why, because it covers creature origins. Um, but it could also be really dangerous and potentially used to destroy them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, overall... What I love most about the pilot is that it sets up the scientific problem like right away, much earlier than it does in the book, and it makes it really personal. Um, so the scene with Marcus and Matthew talking in the cafe was one of my favorite parts of the episode, uh, especially that line from Marcus where he says, His last moments were ugly, confused, and desperate, and he didn't know why. I did that. It was my friend, and I took his death away from him for nothing. I was just like, oh, God, Marcus, you make me feel so much. Like, like I can't even imagine like how horrible and guilty he must be feeling mm -hmm. in that moment. And I, I like that they're tackling this problem scientifically. That's what Matthew is trying to do, but also... They are giving us that emotion behind it mm -hmm. right at the end of the first episode. We're already sucked in trying to figure out this mystery alongside of them. Yeah, I think the the TV show is handling it much better than the book did. Um, but also, like, I think it's always easier to do it better when you're like the second pass at it. Right. Because like <laughs> the first time you're just trying to create the story and then the TV show can say, like, okay, knowing everything that we know now, like, how can we structure it in the most compelling way? So, like, I don't mean that as shade against Deborah Harkness at all. I just think it's, like, the TV show is structured um, in a more compelling way. Right. 
So before we say goodbye to you this week, Dr. Anya, is there anything else that's not science related that you just want to make sure that we talk about? I just want to say that I'm super impressed with Teresa's rowing technique. One of the curses of being a former rower, or I guess current rower as well, although that's not my status, um, is that like every time you go to the gym and you see someone on the rowing machine, like usually they have no idea what they're doing and it just like, it like hurts almost physically to watch them. And so, I mean, obviously like they have a good budget and they can afford to get her a nice trainer and stuff. But I was, I was just sort of like, Ooh, I wonder how good her technique is going to be. And I was, I was quite impressed. And then the other thing that I wanted to talk about, and actually I'm curious to, to hear your guys' thoughts on sort of as we move forward, it's really hard for me not to see this book as a reaction to the Twilight series by Stephanie Meyer. And particularly in this episode, sort of like the way that Matthew is stalking Diana and and craving her, it feels like it's taking a lot of the themes and elements of Twilight and then kind of like tweaking them a little bit to make it better. I mean, in my opinion, (laughs) better. Right. And yeah, because it seems like like he's stalking her, creeping around her room um, in a way, similar way to how Edward does with Bella, but like he has a much better motivation. It's like not just about a creepy romance, right? Like she has a book that he wants for other reasons. It has nothing to do with her as a potential romantic partner. He's just stalking her because she's the person who has the thing that he wants. And the craving kind of like comes later. So I genuinely don't think this book would have gotten published if Twilight hadn't already existed because it was published in 2011. Mm -hmm. The book took place in 2009. So it was probably mostly written in 2009. So it was probably picked up by whatever publisher in 2010, Mm -hmm. which all that is like right in the middle of when the Twilight movies were coming out and anything vampire could sell. Now, do I think that they stand on their own? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I do think that you can very much see the influence, not only in the show, but the book also. Like, there's a bit where in the book that stuck with me from the first time that I read it in 2012 or whatever it was, where Diana describes uh, Matthew as sparkling. Wait, really? Yeah, like he's not actually sparkling. I think she's talking about his smile or something like that. And I'm just like, why would you make that word choice? Why would an editor not be like, maybe no. But (laughs) so it is heavily influenced by it. Like there's just no, there's no way around that because it was so heavy in culture at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I think I really see it as, as more sort of like, looking at Twilight, seeing it as, like, a flawed work that was, like, obviously super compelling to a lot of people, and saying, like, okay, I think I can take the, like, attractive parts of this, and, like, the reasons why people like it, and I think I can make it, like, less problematic, and more interesting, and, like, throw a bunch of history, um, and, like, stuff that I'm really interested in it, um, and I think, you know, I mean, obviously this is episode one, but like largely I think she was pretty successful at it. Although obviously like 
I have, I <laughs> will talk more about some of my issues with the way she incorporated the evolution sort of as the show progresses. I think obviously she has a lot more experience in history. And so the way she incorporated history was much more successful than the way she incorporated evolution. But, you know, not knowing what happens in the second and third book, I'm actually really curious to see how that goes. No comment. <laughs> Well, thanks for stopping by my lab, uh, and I'll see you guys next week. Well, thanks very much to our friend, Dr. Anya, for our first lesson in the actual science behind the show, and we can look forward to more from her in future episodes. And we briefly touched on it while we were talking to Anya, but I wanted to ask you, Mandy, what your exposure to alchemy has been before, either in pop culture or anything really like what did you know about alchemy before going into this well i had no idea that it was actually the precursor to modern science that it had like our scientific method and, and our science today has roots in alchemy i had no idea i always thought alchemy was just fantasy not fantasy because i knew people actually studied it but it was the endeavor of finding something that was fantastical and didn't exist you know, because right. in Harry Potter, they talk about alchemy being, you know, searching for the philosopher's stone and, and immortality. And I've always known that alchemy is the, the search of trying to turn things into gold, which I know we've never actually done. If we did, gold would be pervasive. And, and those mm -hmm. things to me just seem absolutely fantasy. Mm -hmm. So so for to me, alchemy was fiction that, that people were pursuing. Does that make sense? Yep. What about you? So I feel like 10, 15 years ago or so, alchemy was really popular in every form of pop culture that I was consuming. And I was just exposed to it a lot. And I think when we were talking to Anya, you mentioned that you'd only really come across it in Harry Potter. And I was just surprised about that because I had come across it in so many things. I think even at this point, if you Google like, the first law of alchemy you will get equivalent exchange which is not the not real alchemy at all that's from full metal alchemist okay even though i've i've definitely seen people quote it as like a real thing i'm like no no that's that's fake oh interesting yeah yeah it, if i have come across it in fiction before it would have been a very small piece of the work and not something that was so integral to it the way it was in A Discovery of Witches or even the way it was in in Harry Potter because Nicholas Flamel ended up being a name that everybody associates with the Harry Potter world. I was shocked to discover he's an actual real person. Yeah. You know? So yeah, if it was in other stuff that I've experienced, I'd just forgotten about it. It just has not been pervasive for me. And so that's part of why this show and these books are so fascinating to me interesting that was all i was just curious about alchemy in your life because it has been such a big part of mine strangely yeah i'd be curious to know if our listeners um had had the same experience of alchemy that you have in in other fictional works or if they are coming to it as relatively fresh as i am hmm. i would also be curious okay so this is also where we meet jillian for the first time 
Yes. I love how they cast her. Louise Brealey from Sherlock, obviously, is fabulous, and she did a really good job in this role. I also really enjoy how throughout this episode and other episodes, they have somehow always have Jillian in different clothes, but it is the same outfit. I laughed when I read that in your notes, but then I thought about it and realized you are absolutely 100% correct. I, I don't even know how they did it's it. It's uncanny. Yeah. I even like one point she's wearing a shirt that I swear was the exact same like spotted blouse she was wearing earlier except one of them was dogs and not spots <laughs> but I had to look really closely to pick that up yeah I think that's an interesting costuming choice for reasons that we can get into with later episodes as we explore Jillian's character a little bit more mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating Jillian is an interesting character yes they've they've changed her a lot but I think they've made her more interesting. Yeah. We don't know a lot about her at this point. What we do know is that she is clearly a bit jealous of Diana because Diana has achieved so much and Jillian's not even faculty yet. That comes across loud and clear. They also use Jillian for a bit of exposition. So we learn that something bad has happened to Diana's parents and that it's made her uncomfortable with using her magic. This is a very exposition-heavy episode. It is. It is. Which I guess it has to be to set everything up and get the ball rolling. But they could have spread some of that out of it, I think. Yeah, I, I think I agree there. Next up, we are finally introduced to the Bodleian Library and the Ashmole 782 manuscript. Which we already know has to be a big deal because we've had a song named after it already in the episode. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, the song on the soundtrack is called Song of Home slash Ashmole 782, and it goes from that song into the song that plays during this scene. Oh, okay. I think on my yeah. phone it just told me it was called Ashmole 782. My phone lied to me, which is fine. It happens, but okay. But uh, yeah, so Diana goes into the Bodleian and requests some Ashmole manuscripts from Sean the man at the desk and i just i just remembered when he like flips that tube mm -hmm. down to the lady in the basement mm -hmm. that lady dream job right there oh you want to sit in the basement just getting books for people yes i just want to be in a basement with some books okay i think i would prefer sean's job just because i do need some form of human interaction in my life i've discovered that sitting by myself for days on end is really not a healthy way for Mandy to live. Interesting. I mean, I'm sure she's not locked down there. She does get to leave. I mean, I assume she I'm gets sure to she leave. I'm sure she gets to leave, but if she's anything like me, when she leaves work, she goes home by herself and doesn't uh, talk to anybody when she's there oh, either. That sounds fabulous. <laughs> that sounds fabulous. Okay. <laughs> oh, the differences in friends, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we see all the manuscripts in the basement, which are all real cool looking. Mm -hmm. And then we see Diana with 782. Yeah, I think I really, really love the beat where they clearly show us the row of Ashmole manuscripts. And we see 781 and 783 with a hole in between them. It is clearly not on that shelf. And so the woman in the basement just goes on to the next book. And then she comes back 
and it's mysteriously there. And so she gets it and sends it up to Diana. Yeah, that was really And it, it's just setting up this mystery of this book. What is this book? Why is this book special? I like it. It's very, very well done. This whole scene is very well done. So what do we know about the real Ashmole 782? Well, it is a real manuscript that was donated by Elias Ashmole. And it is actually missing. Ashmole 782 was originally donated to the Bodleian Library at Oxford University in 1858 as part of Elias Ashmole's extensive book, coin, and natural ob- object collection. It was designated Object 782 in the collection and bore the same description that we see in the show, Anthropologia, or a treatise containing a short description of man in two parts, the first anatomical, the second psychological. So I I love what Deborah Harkness did here is she took this tiny, tiny tidbit of fact when there's no other fact around it. We don't know anything else about this book except that it was donated to Elias Ashmole. It had this inscription and now it's been missing for forever. And she built this mm-hmm. entire trilogy around it. How awesome is that? That is awesome. And I have it in my head. So, okay, so I've I've seen Deborah Harkness. Like I went to a book signing when the third book came out so this was some years ago but i have it in my head that she like looked for the book herself you know like was at like requested it or Mm -hmm. you you know what i mean like noticed that it was missing on her own i could be making that up yeah no i just don't i don't know so if that's true that's awesome and i'm not saying that she was like the first person to notice it was missing i'm saying that she was there and she tried to find it and it didn't work and that like stuck with mm-hmm. her and she has admitted that it's probably just a weird clerical error and that's why it's missing not magic right <laughs> but that's how i remember what she said yeah but again this was like six years ago so has it been that long since the third book maybe came out? five wow. years ago 2012 or 2013 yeah wow yeah okay so then diana gets ashmole 782 And she opens it, and the world is immediately affected. She's completely oblivious to it, of course, and she focuses just on that manuscript. Even when the lights go out in the library, she basically just kind of looks around like, huh, that's weird, and then goes back to the book. She notices there's hidden text that begins flowing across the page before it flows into her hands, and she tries to stop it by pressing her hands into the book, and then the book burns her. And it's just from start to finish, like so much is happening with mm-hmm. almost no dialogue whatsoever. Actually, I think there might be no yeah. dialogue here. It's just us seeing what is happening as Diana interacts with the book and the cuts back and forth between what's happening at the Bodleian to what's happening with Matthew and Miriam and Jillian. It's fantastic. Yeah. M- Matthew and Miriam have some dialogue, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And I do find it. Like, only some of the lights go out. Like, the little lamps go out. But at one point, Diana does pull one of the lights closer to the book so she can see the words better. Yeah, so it looked like all of the overhead lights in the library went out, but all of the table lamps stayed on. I love that there is selective light magic. Hey, maybe they have different power sources? I don't know. Or the magic (laughs) knew that Diana was going to need to be able to read the book. Yeah. (laughs) I like I like that version. I also enjoyed that everybody just stayed in their seats. Like their lights went out, but they were like, "Oh, whatever, it's fine." Yeah, that's true. I I don't think I th- thought about that because I was so busy focusing on like the point of the scene 
that I didn't mm-hmm. notice. But you're right. Nobody else gets up. Yeah. I do love this scene, though. Like, the the really intense music, the cutting to Matthew and Miriam and them talking about how they can feel something. Mm-hmm. And, like, this is a really important scene. And basically, three seasons of television are, are dependent on this scene. So, and I think they did a good job of making it stand out. Absolutely. I like the juxtaposition between Diana's obliviousness and Matthew and Miriam's like intensity of feeling behind something mm-hmm. is happening because Diana opened this book. It's wonderful juxtaposition there. Yeah. It also just makes sense because in the books, well, just in the book after this, people just sort of start showing up. And this explains why people start showing up, like because other people have felt it. Right. I was bothered a little bit by Jillian's reaction, though, but only because the cinematography doesn't match the tone of the rest of the show. They made her look like something out of a horror film by keeping it so dark. You couldn't even really see her face, just her outline and then the jerky way that she was like standing up and moving. Yeah, she kind of looks like a zombie. Yeah. Or something like it was really weird. It was really weird and it felt out of place. And that was I think that's the only thing in that whole scene that I didn't think was well done. Mm-hmm. And then Diana shoves the book shut and gives it back to good old Sean. And then she runs out of the library. Yeah. And bumps into a man who we recognize from the photograph she was staring at earlier. Mm-hmm. And thinks she sees her dad, which I actually really love that scene. Again, just for the foreshadowing that's involved there. I guess no spoilers. So that's all. Remind me, do we know yet that her parents are dead at this point in the episode? This is hard for me because I knew going in, right. but I don't think so. Because she she had the conversation with Jillian that kind of expressed something happened to her parents, but we don't know yeah. what. Yeah, so it's not don't know what. super clear because we don't find out that her parents were murdered until later in the episode when she's with Sean. Yeah. So I think at this point, for anybody who had never seen it, it wouldn't really feel like foreshadowing. It would just be weird. Yeah. But I agree. I think it was lovely foreshadowing, and it was a great reaction from Diana to just kind Mm -hmm. of continue to put her off kilter after what she had just experienced with the book. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And and she she looks off kilter during this whole scene. Mm -hmm. And then Matthew sort of comes running up and sees her for the first time, and... Jillian comes running out and mentions that the humans didn't feel it, thus telling Matthew that these two are not humans. Right. In his his eavesdropping. And now Matthew has a new research subject. And Diana runs off very flustered. Yeah, I think Diana doesn't even say anything to Jillian at this point, does she? Because she's so flustered about seeing her dad that she just like Mm -hmm. looks at Jillian and then turns around and runs away. So yeah, Jillian must have been left happens. very confused at that point. Oh, and Jillian mentions something about the Ashmole manuscript, which Matthew overhears. So that's important, too. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yep. So many little details that God, if you, like, miss just a tiny little thing, then wow. Okay. And then we have a big cut to a completely different scene. And we meet Marcus, except we don't know his name is Marcus right away. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. We are 15 minutes into the episode and we are finally actually seeing a vampire on screen when we know he's a vampire. Like, I guess. 
But that opening scene with Matthew in the fog on the bridge, like, obviously he's a vampire. (laughs) I mean, I think everybody knows he's a vampire, especially with the marketing and stuff leading up to the show. But they've never, they haven't told us that before. That's Even even the phone call between Miriam and Matthew about the book is something, our, our blood is reacting to something. In traditional mm-hmm. vampire folklore, you wouldn't expect that to be a vampire because you don't really think about vampires having blood so much that's living and can react, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading way too much into it, but that's how I felt watching it was we're 15 minutes in and we're finally actually seeing a vampire for sure. That's true. I do think this scene of him trying to save his friend... Like if I was just flipping around on TV and I saw that scene, that would that would drag me in. And it's one of the few in this first episode that would. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think there's more action in these two minutes than we've definitely seen leading up to it, for sure. Mm-hmm. I love Edward Blumel. He's fabulous as Marcus, and he's just so... He does a really good job of looking like a cute little puppy dog, but also like a 400-year-old vampire. Yeah, he nails it. He absolutely nails it. And I like that they have Marcus here fail at his siring attempt or making a vampire attempt um, because that was just something talked about kind of in the background in the books Mm -hmm. and giving this problem to Marcus sort of brings it into the main plot and the main characters and like a problem they need to solve and not just vaguely something that's happening in the world. Right. And we finally also get to see how important Ashmole 782 really is because Matthew has been looking for it for centuries. I mean, we knew when it was introduced and and the reaction that Miriam and Matthew had that obviously there's something going on here, that this book is special. But this is where we find out that Matthew has actively been looking for it for centuries. And so we know moving forward, this book is probably going to have a lot to do with the plot yeah and then we go to diana sleep mm. dreaming about spiders why does it always webs? have to be spiders yeah great to be fair in the book they used the same sort of thing like for the same sort of foreshadowy stuff they used ribbons which isn't very dark <laughs> like ominous is the word i'm looking for yeah so I understand why they went with spider webs, but, but I just didn't spiders. need more big spiders in my life. Right. And I didn't need it to be so like jump cutty, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, they, they made it to be kind of like a jump scare and it, it didn't need to be scary. I mean, maybe I it did. I mean, because maybe honestly, I guess if I was dreaming about spiders, I would probably wake up suddenly like she did too. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't I, I don't know what I really think about that. I just know I hate spiders and so that instantly is gonna give me a negative reaction. But then when she wakes up she calls Sarah and M, everybody's favorite lesbian witch ants. Oh, absolutely. Yay. Sarah and M are perfect. I love that Sarah is so matter of fact. She's immediately just out of bed. Okay, what's wrong? Let's make the coffee. Was it a grimoire? You know, she just like starts going yeah. down the list of what it could be that, you know, Diana's dealing yeah. with. And it's just amazing. 
I only ever want to see Alex Kingston playing a lesbian witch from now on. <laughs> like, now that I've had that, everything else is subpar. I'm going to headcanon that, that Sarah is also somehow River Song, who has time-traveled and just had this whole life in Madison. <laughs> I have very complicated feelings about River Song, mm, so okay. let's leave that there. Okay. All right. That's fair. I will say, though, that as we previously established with the equinox, it is the end of September... And Sarah mentions that it's 5 a.m., except the sun is up. And this is very bothersome to me, because that sun would not be up. <sighs> You're absolutely correct. <laughs> I was having a really hard time with the phone call. Like, I've watched this episode, gosh, three or four times now, and every single time it, like, catches my brain just a little bit because I'm like, wait, I have a conversation with somebody who lives in the UK every single week, and I understand how these time zones work. <laughs> Mm -hmm. it's not gonna be i mean it is absolutely gonna be five in the morning in one place and 10 a.m in another that's just i mean that mm -hmm. that is how time works but it doesn't make sense that diana's just getting out of bed at 10 in the morning right mm -hmm. like i mean she's an academic you don't start your day at 10 in the morning she has lots of work to do to get her professorship or whatever yeah absolutely she's sleeping in the sun is rising at weird times. What is this world? <laughs> I headcanon it that, you know, I just assume that Diana stays up late reading and doing more research, which is why she sleeps in so late. But you have to do some hand waviness there. Yeah. Like, it would have been better if if she had woken up at 5 a.m., but then it would have been midnight. Actually, that probably would have been better if she had woken up at 5 a.m. and called Sarah at midnight, because Sarah's probably awake at midnight. Or, or like they were real. just going to sleep. Right. And then Sarah was like, what What are you doing? It's midnight. Right. Yeah, I think that would have made worked. so much more sense. But Sarah and I are the best, and we need more. I will wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, and then we cut back to Marcus, and Matthew is there with him now. And I love the two of them together. They do. They work really well off of each other, I think. Marcus is at the police station giving his statement about what happened to James, because James ended up dying he was not successfully sired and that's a heartbreaking enough situation because the cops are like why did it take you so long to call us and obviously we know why but he can't say and so then he leaves with Matthew and Matthew is both sympathetic but also furious with Marcus because oh my god the look Matthew gives him in the police station mm -hmm. it's so perfect like disappointed dad Matthew does such good things with his face. He absolutely does. Yep. And this is a scene where we learn a lot more about vampire lore in this world. Mm -hmm. And I love it. Like, it's different from any modern vampire lore that I've seen in recent years. It's it's not the same as True Blood. It's not the same as Buffy. It's not the same as Twilight. You know, it, it's just, it's different from what we generally see when we see vampires in fiction we immediately in this scene we have matthew ask marcus if he even got consent from james before he hired him which holy shit is a huge deal mm -hmm. like who would have ever thought that you talk about consent before vampires sire somebody like in every instance i've ever seen it's just nope i'm gonna bite him now I will say, I personally believe that to be more of a Declaremont thing, not necessarily a vampires in the bigger world. That is a fair possibility. 
or like a good person thing, I suppose. Yeah, a Not, good person thing, I think, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've also seen Matthew standing in a church holding a rosary and praying, mm-hmm. which in most other vampire stories would not happen. He wouldn't even be able to hold a rosary without it burning him. We've seen him walk around in broad daylight. And and so Deborah Harkness has completely taken the mythology of vampirism and completely made something new here. Even though some of it is closer to original folklore, um, I read that Dracula could go out in daylight, but his powers were diminished. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're kind of reaching way back in the annals of vampire history. And I just, I don't know. I always think it's great when a writer comes to old material and makes it new again. And I feel like that's exactly what Deborah Harkness has done here. I feel like with vampires, you almost have to, since they get done so mm-hmm. much. Not that I'm upset about that. I always love a good vampire. Right. But, you know, I, I feel like sometimes when authors mess with it too much, they get a lot of flack. But vampires aren't real. Do do whatever you want with them. Right, Exactly. So I like I like what she's done with them here. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like she's thought really hard about what it would be like to be that old and to have gone through so much. Mm-hmm. So I, I really like her portrayal of vampires. I do too. I think it's wonderful. And I think I think it's as close to realistic as we could get talking about something that's obviously so unrealistic. Yeah. I think she went out of her way to try and think about, like you said, what would a person who had lived for X amount of years, since in this episode we don't know how old any of them are, you know, how would they act? How would they think? How would they interact with the world around them after having been through so many iterations of the world, Mm -hmm. which I think is great. Uh, This is also the conversation between Marcus and Matthew where we learn that there is a widespread problem among creatures. And that Matthew thinks Ashmole 782 has information about vampire origins in it so that maybe he can begin to figure out what is causing these problems and eventually reverse them. I think he also has a line about how we cannot let the witches have that. So sort of our first real sign that there's some tension between the creatures. At the end of that scene, he mentions that he will talk to Dr. Bishop. And then we cut to... Dr. Bishop in the library uh, needing a book and she goes to get the book and it flies off the shelf because she can't reach it into Matthew's hands. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I like that this is another instance of accidental or uncontrolled magic. Like we are really mm-hmm. leaning into the idea that Diana is definitely a witch, but magic is not familiar or comfortable to her Mm -hmm. Uh, we also learned that diana can tell that he's a vampire by sight he has barely spoken to her she has really not had any interactions with him at all other than looking at him and she instantly knows that he's a vampire yes i also feel like matthew matthew the character not matthew the actor that's fun um (laughs) is like purposefully deciding to pitch his voice lower here and be more intimidating. Oh, see, I okay. I did not pick up on that in this scene. I did on a later scene, but not mm-hmm. in this one. Or at least maybe not intimidating, but like, I just, I feel like Vampire Matthew, again, obviously all of this is an actor choice, but I feel like it comes from, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, 
is like trying to seem mysterious and vampire-y, which to me is hilarious just because as we get to know Matthew throughout the series, he's kind of a nerd. <laughs> Did you just call Matthew a nerd? He is, though. He's like, <laughs> he's a prof- <laughs> Can you imagine being this, you know, whatever, however old, as we learn later, vampire, and like, yes, I work at Oxford, I'm a professor. <laughs> like, come on. He's a nerd. No, I do not disagree at all. I just don't think I've ever heard anybody <laughs> characterize him that way, and I love it. I am pretty sure there's a point in the books where even Diana calls him an old fuddy-duddy. Oh, that's, yeah, <laughs> like, I think yes, you're probably right. Exactly. fantastic. Matthew's a nerd. We just, we really have not seen that aspect of him in in this show. No, that's true. I like it. Uh, We do, however, know that he is a professor of biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And I really wish that in our conversation with Anya that I had asked really what the differences between evolutionary biology and biochemistry are. There was just this like brief second where I was going to offer a guess, but I had nothing. (laughs) So our, let's just move on. Yeah. All right, dear listeners, if you know the difference between evolutionary biology and biochemistry, please let us know using the hashtag DesireMadeReal. The music that plays here is repeated later in a completely different way, and it's really well done, and I liked it a lot because it's done in kind of a different pitch that's slower and more romantic, but is still the same sort of song that's here, and it's really good. When you say later on, do you mean later in this episode or in a later episode? I mean in next in episode two. Oh, in episode two. Okay, that's why you're being cryptic. Yes. See, you pay more attention to the music than I do. So, um, yeah. I've also like I've listened to the soundtrack, and I will sometimes when I'm at work just put these on in the background. So I have watched them so many times. Okay. So then when we talk about episode two, you're going to have to point it out and be like, this is the Jillian song I was talking about. Not the Jillian Jillian. song, sorry, the library song. Oh, the library song. Yeah, okay. Library song. So then we get to Jillian, who's grading papers, and for the first time in this whole episode, drinking a white wine, which must be a sign of evilness, right? Because everybody else has always drank red. It's probably a sign of something. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, so she... Picks up her phone and must, I don't know, she makes a decision. And so the next scene that we see her going and telling another witch that she knows what the disturbance was. Right. She goes specifically to Sylvia, who I believe we know is the head of the coven there. Yes, she mentioned it earlier, Mm -hmm. but I could not remember that witch's name. And that's why my sentence was so weird. (laughs) Her name was Sylvia. And uh, we see Sylvia is teaching and uh, teaching like high school, not a college. So the witches are teaching the children everyone's worst fear, probably devil worship or something. Maybe I took that a step too far. Whatever. (laughs) No, I think that's great. Okay. But I kind of I kind of like Sylvia infiltrating the children of Oxford. Absolutely. And then we get to everybody's favorite. Diana eating baked goods. That's what you got out of this next scene? Diana eating baked goods? Really? No. (laughs) I just enjoy how much they have her eating baked goods because that's the only thing I do when I'm in England. I'm like, I will eat and drink tea. That's what I'm going to do here. Well, I mean, that's what you do when you go to England. 
Yeah. It's part of what you um, do anyway. But she is on her laptop trying to find out information about Matthew Claremont when who should saunter in in his tight vampire pants but Matthew Claremont. You know, I honestly just don't know. Is his Are his pants, like, particularly tight, or is he just incredibly slender? I think he's just incredibly slender, and his pants are well-tailored. Hmm. It's hard to tell sometimes. I mean, there's other episodes where definitely the pants are very tight, mm-hmm. but... It, I mean, I presume that along with, you know, the writers and the directors, much of the costume department was female also. Probably, which may have something to do with it as well. But generally, I think that he's just a very well-tailored man. That's fair. When I think of Matthew, either from the book or from the show, that's what I think of, is very, very put together and very stylish, even if he is a nerd. I was just going to say, he is a big nerd, so he would be very put together. Yeah. But this, like, I will say that Matthew Good, as an actor, is not really, like, my taste in good-looking actors, you know? I'm really more of a Chris Hemsworth arms person. Right. But I don't know what it was, but this scene in particular is when I decided he was very good looking and I was okay with watching eight more episodes. Well, seven more episodes with him. Yeah, this is the scene where you really begin to see chemistry between Matthew and Diana Mm -hmm. um, or conversely between Matthew and Teresa, depending on how you want to look at it. But this this is the scene where there's fire coming from both of them and it plays out very well on screen. You know, she just, she's so non, no nonsense and direct when she's responding to him. And I just, I love that this comes right after we've met Sarah, because we see mm-hmm. that Diana's personality is so like Sarah's in a lot of ways, just in how they, they think and stand up for themselves. And it's, it's just, it's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole conversation is great. And the way that they're just like, they're both kind of looking at each other. And it's good. I don't know how else to describe it. They're just good actors. They are. They do a lot with facial expression. They do, And yes. not a lot with words. I mean, they do a lot with words, too. But so much of this episode in particular is dependent on you actually being able to see what's happening on the screen. Mm-hmm. And he uh, explains about Ashmo 782 in this one and that he's been looking for it and that he thinks she still has it. And scholarly Diana is very affronted. At the idea that she would steal a book from the Bodleian. But also they just don't seem to like each other much in this scene. Or at least Diana doesn't seem to like Matthew. Right. You know, he does try to give her a warning and she completely takes it as a threat and just basically says, I'm having none of this and gets up and walks away. And then she just goes to work and looks at manuscripts all day. I don't think she gets a lot done, though, because as she turns off her light and calls to Sean, she really needs a drink. That's true. And this is the single weirdest scene in this whole episode, right? I mean, this is this is weird. It is. Okay. They're out on this pseudo date sort of thing that's solely for the audience to learn that Diana's parents were murdered. I mean, that's proper dark. Let's have Diana go on a date so we can tell everybody her parents were murdered. That's just weird. I, f- I feel like they they were trying to do two things with this scene. One was get the exposition out, and the other was to show that Diana has more to her life than just I look at books and then I go home and call my aunts, you know? They super failed on that second thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But they did have her say, like, Sean, I need a drink as though the two of them were friends. But then they clearly weren't. 
the next scene yeah (laughs) she's like well now i know what you drink and now i know what you drink so tell me about you what do you do when you're not at the library you know these two have clearly never had a real life conversation that doesn't have to do with work yeah absolutely i i do wish they had gotten this exposition out and you know showed that diana does have friends and people that she knows in a different way but i will mention that down in the book section okay after that very strange scene, we cut to Finland, which is also a rather jarring cut, and it looks very different than anything we've seen so far. Which is nice, because I think they're still in Wales, technically. Oh, okay. You mean for the filming? Yeah. Okay. So in this scene, we see two men that we haven't yet seen in the show are walking into the woods. One has a hunting rifle. And he's very obviously hunting whoever lives in the cabin by the water. He's not out hunting deer or bear or anything like that. So then we learn that it's Satu after she kills the man with magic. And in the scene, Peter, who is the man who's still alive, we don't know his name yet, but we learn it in the episode. He looks genuinely afraid of Satu in this moment. And honestly, that doesn't make sense to me. He's there to recruit her for something called the congregation. You know, he obviously already knows that she's powerful. So why does he look afraid of her? Well, I mean, we find... Mm, no, I only have spoilers. Okay, then I in, guess we In will, response to that. We can, like, put a pin in that maybe and come back to it later. But in the context yeah. of this episode, in, in the way that it's set up... I mean, I can understand being afraid of her because she just killed somebody... Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he knew that was going to happen. He set it up for this man to come try to kill the witch in the woods. What a strange job interview, right? Yes. It's so like, bizarre. Like, this man I have brought you to murder. What? But apparently this murder makes her worthy. And so she's going because... to be sworn into something called the congregation, which sounds very ominous. I do on a sort of a separate note, like how they've sort of set Satu up as a foil for Diana. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the first time we've seen her, and she's obviously super into her magic. You know, is very powerful, uses it very specifically, and has good control over it. And, like you said, Peter is shocked at how much magic she has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so far, we know Diana has magic, but that she's really worried about it doesn't like using it, has very little control over it right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think Diana and Satu are the only two witches that we see use magic in this episode, aren't they? Yes. I had not considered that, but that is a fantastic choice on the the part of the, the show's writers. Yes. Especially for super spoiler, spoiler, spoiler reasons. Yes. And then we learn all about creature bigotry in this world. Everybody loves some good bigotry. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, we, we've already kind of had hints of it because Matthew and Miriam were talking about the book and not wanting the witches to get it. So there's there's a hint there that all is not well in creature relations. Mm-hmm. But then we get Jillian and God, the utter look of disgust on her face whenever she comes up to Diana and is like, you were talking to a vampire. Yeah. And Diana's immediately like, yeah, it's fine. He read my book, whatever. Mm -hmm. And Jillian is just like, no, they hate us. And we hate them. 
Yeah, it's enough to actually make me almost dislike the actress for doing such a good job there. Yeah. I know like, that's a terrible thing to say. I mean, she really nails, you know, she's got it down. Mm-hmm. I don't, in the, I don't think this is terribly spoilery, but in the book, Jillian was kind of a jerk all along. Mm-hmm. Like, she and Diana never really got along. Um, and in this one, they made sure to make them friends mm-hmm. just so that then Jillian could betray her. And I hate her more. Yeah. I th- I think, th- honestly, I think that's a little bit of a good choice, too, because I know you want to talk about this a little bit later, but it it's mm-hmm. another layer of giving Diana a life outside of the library and books. Because yeah, Because they've set up a friend. Even though we haven't seen their friendship develop on screen, we're told about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we're also told they haven't seen each other in six years, but, you know, they're friendly. They're hanging out socially. And, and so I think that's why they did that, because Jillian's a character that we need. It wasn't something that they could just give to somebody else to do. Yeah. And so they had to build her character up a little bit more, and it absolutely makes you dislike her even more. Absolutely. Yep. <sighs> Jillian. I just want to point out that, okay, so this next thing really is a tiny, tiny little blip in the episode, but I have to talk about it because I love it so much. Okay. After Diana and uh, Matthew, well, I guess Matthew's still in the library. I don't know. But after Diana leaves and, and she has that conversation with Jillian, the next place we see her is standing in line at a coffee cart and she's reading mm-hmm. a book and Matthew's watching her. But what happens is Diana is so engrossed in her book, she doesn't notice that the line is moving. And so people go around her and she's just standing in the middle of the square reading a book with no people around her because suddenly there's no line because she's just so into this book that she's reading. And that is a character beat that I absolutely adore. As someone who has been reading on a bus before and then looked up and not knowing where I was... Because I went straight past my stop, oh, having no no idea about it. I I can feel her on this yeah. one. I also I also choose personally to feel that Matthew watching this is when he first started to feel some affection for her. You know, as more than just the crazy witch who can get my book. Like this is a a human person or a witch, whatever. You know, who has a personality that he appreciates. Right. I I absolutely think that he thought it was adorable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, adorable. That's a good yeah. one. Then we cut to Diana, who is running, moving into rowing. She is very into physical fitness, for sure. <laughs> Matthew is watching her. And while she's rowing, he takes this opportunity to go through her rooms and search her stuff looking for the book, which is a gross invasion of privacy. But on my third rewatch, I noticed that the walls in her rooms are painted blue. Oh my god, the blue in this show. There is so much blue. I don't think Diana owns any clothes that aren't blue. Sometimes, in later episodes, she wears gray. Yes. That is very close to blue. <laughs> it, it, Yeah, because a lot of grays are definitely bluish in tone. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I did notice in this scene where Matthew is going through her stuff is that this is the third time that we have seen the photograph of Diana's parents. And it's the third time that that photograph has been in a different place. The first time it wasn't in a frame. 
uh, Diana was just holding it, looking at it before she went to the lecture that we saw earlier. Then after she woke up from her nightmare, it was framed on her bedside table. And in this Mm -hmm. scene, it's still in the frame, but it's stored in her dresser drawer. I don't know what any of that means. I just find it fascinating. I mean, she is just moving in. So I guess she would move things around. But putting it back to the dresser drawer is a little bit odd. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm just nitpicking. It just seemed weird. Or maybe it does does mean something and we just don't know what yet. I don't know. It does just seem like a choice. But, you know, like they wanted to move it here to have it in the scene. But then they wanted to move it here so Matthew could find it. Like, that's how I'm reading it. Yeah, that's probably more accurate. Then we cut to Peter and Satu again. They are now in Oxford. I really, really don't like the character beat where Peter talks to Satu like she's a dog. Did you pick up on that? Where he's like, she's standing in the hallway and he says, come in here. Don't linger out there. And it's just very rude and demeaning, dehumanizing. Yeah. I mean, it's good character for Peter Knox, who is an asshole. Yes. I mean, it's absolutely something that Peter Knox would do, I think. I just, it stood out because this is the first moment where we've seen him not being afraid of Satu. Yeah, that's true. I think we're actually seeing his personality here. It just, so it stood out to me. They are in Oxford to see Jillian because she's going to tell them all about the book and Diana. Mm -hmm. And Satu is very, very aggressive here. And it's a weird character beat, I think. Yeah, when she like drapes herself on the couch. Yeah, the way that she chooses to sit on the couch. And then she doesn't even give Jillian time to answer Peter when he asks for the witch's name. It's just like instantly, what's the name? Jillian like takes a breath to start speaking. And Satu's like, you heard him. What's the name? all very like down and sultry and mean it was just weird it was it was very it's a very odd scene although i will say jillian has some good acting here because you can see that she's kind of reluctant to give diana's name Mm -hmm. but then she does it she does and it's very clear that peter has heard the name diana bishop before yeah you know i don't think so peter is played by an actor named owen teal Mm -hmm who I don't think I've ever seen play anyone but a jerk. I'm not sure I've seen him play anything else. It's possible I've only ever seen him other than this in Game of Thrones, though. So, Okay, well, if he's in Game of Thrones, I have absolutely seen him. He plays the guy at the Night's Watch who really does not like Jon Snow. Wow, I absolutely did not recognize him in that context. Interesting. He does it very (laughs) well. And then we cut back to... I think the final scene, really, uh, Matthew yeah. and Diana again. Matthew has finished searching the rooms, um, and Diana is still out rowing, so he's waiting for her, and he tries really, really hard to intimidate her in this moment by asking, do you really think it's safe down here in the dark? Which is a really scary thing to hear from Matthew once you know he's a vampire. Again, because I've read the books and I do know that he is just a big nerd, I, it still just felt to me like, oh, Matthew's trying to be intimidating. Yeah, I guess. But that's because I have context. Right. I can see where other people wouldn't feel that way. I think at this point, if your only context is this episode, then absolutely, mm-hmm. he's scary here. Um, And he only gets scarier before the scene is over. 
And so I, I really have to give Diana like mad props because she's standing up to him. She knows exactly who he is and what he's capable of. And mm-hmm. she's not playing his game at all. She's just like, if I am lying, what are you going to do? Are you going to rip my head off to get the truth out of me? And she just flat out says, I don't have your book, which obviously she doesn't, but she doesn't care why he wants it. She doesn't care why it's important. All she knows is that she had it. She doesn't have it anymore. End of story. Leave me alone. You know, that's where she is. Mm -hmm. And I think she does it so well. And this scene shows a piece of her personality that I think is vital to her character. And that is that, that Diana, even though she can appear to be I don't want to use the use the word nerdy because that's what we've been using to describe Matthew but but she's very much a historian a researcher who is only in her books and typically or even stereotypically that kind of person is going to be meek and shy and very mild and Diana is none of those things and they're telling us up front in this episode she is going to stand up for herself and she's not putting up with any of your crap yeah, I think that's good because, again, in the book, there's lots of opportunity when she's describing her childhood and blah, blah, and her school and how she got to where she is in her career, how you can see that she's very tenacious, that she goes after what she wants, mm-hmm. and she's not shy or stereotypically bookish or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I like that they've found other ways to put it in. Yeah. And then we end the episode with Matthew picking up her jacket that has fallen on the ground and smelling it, which is kind of a weird beat. And then suddenly he is absolutely 100% a predator and she is his prey. And he acknowledges it and you can see how close he is to that edge of losing control. And he's trying so desperately to hold it together and he just tells her to walk past him slowly. No sudden moves. Don't run. But go get away from here. And I like this scene just because it shows this is the first scene where we've actually seen a vampire be predatory. We, we haven't seen that leading up until this. We've seen lots of conversation. We've seen lots of science. We've seen Marcus, while he is trying to sire someone, he's doing it out of compassion and love of his friend. So mm-hmm. we haven't seen this predatory like rage inducing I have to have you this like lustful I want to kill you kind of what's the word I'm looking for emotion almost out of a vampire which is something that you expect and so I'm glad we get it in the first episode but I almost wish that we got more of it because it does feel like it comes a little bit out of left field yeah yeah I didn't really like this scene at all but I also don't know how else they would have done it to get that point across. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It is what it is. It does feel way out of left field and weird. And it's it's not in the book at all. And Okay. Uh, I was going to ask because it's been a while since I've read the book. And it feels like something that would have been in the book. It's not. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know how else they could have done it differently either. Um, and, and so I think I can I can move past the out of left fieldness to appreciate what they're trying to do with the story here, because they're trying to tell us something about vampires and yeah. how 
they really are. They're not just these scientific nerds who are sad when their friends die. Yeah. I guess for me what it is is the scene comes across as kind of campy almost. Mm. And the rest of the episode has not been campy. Okay. Or at least has not been trying to be campy. Right. I think it doesn't cross the campy line for me because Matthew Good is just so good in this scene. God, that this pun was not intended. <laughs> Matthew Good saves a lot of because his he is such a, a good actor. Yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> this is going to be hard to do in the show. Um, yeah. Yeah. The the way that he just holds his face and he, there's so much strain happening while he is absolutely not moving. I don't I don't know how he does it. Yeah, me neither. Well, I guess it's his job, so. Definitely not mine. Yeah, but he he does he does sell it, but it's still, I don't know, it, it doesn't really do anything for me. So that takes us through the whole episode, kind of the, the beat by beat, uh, but we do definitely want to have some more general conversation and talk about our favorite parts. And one thing I really want to talk about is just kind of how subtle this episode is. There's no introduction of a big bad. At this point, all we know is that this world has vampires and witches. Something is causing vampire sirens to fail, and both vampires and witches want this mysterious book. If my mom hadn't already read the books, this episode was not going to grab her attention. Honestly, I'm still not sure that it will. Hmm. It, it's very much a slow burn. It is not bombastic at all. It's, we're just going to give you this world and you take it as slowly as we give it to you yeah i i don't mind it possibly because i've read the books but also i i do like the the underlying building mystery building tension stuff Mm -hmm. but i don't know if it would grab me at all like i said only that one scene i thought was really kind of like audience grabbing right if you weren't like oh i want to see how they do this and how they do this and that sort of thing so i don't know as a fan of the book I really liked this episode, and I loved all the casting and that sort of thing. But if I hadn't read the book, I don't know how I would feel about it, because mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah, I think I was almost disappointed by the first episode the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. I had already committed to doing this podcast with you, though, so there was no way I was not <laughs> going to watch the rest of them. And gosh, by episode three, I was completely all in and completely invested but for oh, a good. television show pilot or premiere, I guess it wasn't a pilot because they filmed everything all at once. For a premiere, it was very lackluster. Yeah, it had a couple of really good tension scenes. Mm-hmm. But then it was just kind of like, what is the plot? Yeah. But again, the book was like that too. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, the book was like that. Oh yeah. I remember being 10 chapters in or something ridiculous and being like, why am I still reading this? <laughs> Like, I, every single time I would read it, I'd be like, why? Do I care? I don't know. But I kept reading it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh, hey, plot. Yeah. I think now that I've seen all eight episodes, and now I've seen this one multiple times, I absolutely love it. Like, mm-hmm. every moment of this episode, I really do love. I mean, there are probably some things I would change. We've talked about a few things that we thought were weird. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think it's fantastic. It just, on the first watch, I don't know that a ton of people, especially if they're not already fans of this world, would be grabbed by it. But I really hope that 
new audiences kind of follow the rule where you don't judge an entire series based on the first episode. Like you have to give it two or three episodes or four or five before you really decide if you're in it. See, the thing is, it's already been confirmed for seasons two or three, so whatever. <laughs> okay, that's fair. New, more new viewers, doesn't matter. That's fair. Things I absolutely love about this episode. Mm-hmm. Marcus's despair at failing to sire James. Yes. He has this line where he, God, he just, he shows so much compassion and it just tears at my heart every time. He says, his last moments were ugly, confused, and desperate. And he didn't know why. And then he goes on to say that he did that to him. And if he had known that was a possibility, he never would have done that. And that just, God, it tells you so much about the character of Marcus. It tells you so much about Mm -hmm. this world. And it just makes me want to wrap Marcus up in this giant hug and, like, feed him chocolate. Yes. I feel like before that, Marcus is very much portrayed as, like, the irresponsible teenage son. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. But in in that moment, you could see that he was also, like, an old vampire. Yes. Who had sincere compassion for humans, even. Like, mm-hmm. James was a human, and it was his friend, and he loved his friend. And also, this shows um, something that comes up again later in this show, which is good friendship between men. Good, like, affectionate mm-hmm. friendship between men that I do really like. Yes, we absolutely do not see that enough on screen. And mm-hmm. this show does that really well. I also really, really love the casting. I was really unsure about how this was going to go whenever I saw the casting, even before the trailer was released and everything. But oh my goodness, it's perfect. And let me just say, Alex Kingston as Sarah perfect casting is perfect yeah i mean alex kingston is gonna do an amazing job given anything mm-hmm. but she's uh, she's just perfect as sarah you're right yeah just perfect so the things that i absolutely love are the cinematography which is just it's just beautiful mm-hmm. i love it so much almost every shot made me wish i was in england which, I mean, isn't hard to do. England is, like, my favorite place in the world. Right. But still, made me wish I was there. And just just every shot was great. And I loved it. And I loved the wardrobe. Like, everybody is just dressed so perfectly for their characters. Mm-hmm. Even people who, like, like Miriam, I'd never really pictured her wardrobe at all while reading the books. But I loved the choices that they made for her and everything and maybe diana only does own blue but as somebody who has definitely pulled out five gray t-shirts while looking for one specific gray t-shirt i'm not gonna judge her maybe she was just in a blue mood while she packed for oxford all right i think it's time to jump into our by the book or spoiler section where we kind of talk about the differences between the episode and how the book was written. So if you have not read the books or watched all of the episodes, please proceed at your own risk. In this section, we're going to talk about things that may have not yet appeared in the show or never do at all. So turn us off now if you don't want to be spoiled. You think they're gone? I hope they are because I really don't want to spoil anybody. All right, let's... Okay. Let's do this. Yeah. 
So you mentioned this up top in our uh, conversation proper, but the book is told from Diana's first person perspective. So everything we see involves Diana and we see people through her eyes. But Mm -hmm. the show introduces us to Matthew up front. And he's the one who gives, he sets the tone to the show by doing that introductory voiceover, um, Mm -hmm. which was a much longer one in this episode than we'll see in future episodes. And I thought that was actually a really good change. Yeah. I think I I did mention before, but it does open up the world right away. Mm -hmm. And it makes it clear to book readers that it's not just going to be from Diana's point of view and that the world is going to be expanded and we're going to see other people. Yeah, I think that's great because it also does give us the opportunity to get information that we didn't get in the books. We got consequences in the books, like uh, Jillian betraying Diana. But in the show, we get to see Jillian betraying Diana. Yeah. I think that's a really well done change. And I think that the writers, they really rose to the challenge. Yeah. So then we if Matthew searching Diana's room in the show, he did it while she was out in the book. It is 10,000 times creepier because she is asleep in the room mm-hmm. and he ends up like mesmerized and staring at her for hours. Oh, I forgot about that part. It's so creepy and I don't like it. I mean, he is there to look for the book and not watch her sleep. But he does end up watching her sleep for hours. Yeah. I think what I missed from that scene was that is when Matthew begins to understand Diana's power and how she doesn't understand her own power. Like, we've got a lot of back and forth between them in this episode where she's like, I don't do magic. And he says, I can smell your power. And they kind of just let it go with that. And so I, I think I would have preferred to see something about Matthew really understanding that this is, yes, she's powerful, but she doesn't actually know it. Right. That it sort of comes out of her when she's unconscious. Right. Yep. The introduction of Ashmole 782 was also a little bit different. In the show, it burns her hand. That doesn't happen in the book. The text does move on the page, but doesn't actually flow out onto her hand. She did not have the vision of her father afterwards. I liked the text flowing under her hand and, as we talked about, seeing her dad afterwards, because both of those are very foreshadowy. Are we just straight up saying what they foreshadow in this section? No, I think we absolutely we... can, because, I mean, okay. we've warned folks, Let's. this is spoiler section and the books are not off limits here yeah the text flowing into her hand is foreshadowing for like the very end of the series when she does absorb the entire book right absolutely um and the vision of her father is absolutely foreshadowing that he travels in time yeah that really was her father that she bumped into that must have been like from what we know about his personality from when we meet him properly in the second book that must have been so much fun for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, God, I cannot wait until season two. I know. Meeting the dads. It's going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. So I think, you know, we, we've got this section kind of blacked out on specific instances that, that are different. But I'm one thing that I'm really excited that the show is doing 
and it's doing so well is that it's bringing things from later parts of the story, even later books in the trilogy, and putting them right up front to set up foreshadowing and to make that world bigger. And it's just, it's exciting. It's little bits of Easter eggs for the readers of the books. And it just, it makes me happy and it kind of brings me joy and I really like it. I also like it. Uh, We already kind of talked about Jillian being different um, because of now we get to see her backstory. We get to see the things that she does and not just the consequences of her actions, which is really nice. Um, They did change it so that she's British in the show instead of American. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I have no memory of her being American. Okay. And I literally read the book like a couple weeks ago. Okay. Maybe it's not as big a deal as I am imagining it being. I am also really bad at, I don't know if I actually skip character descriptions so much as I read them and immediately forget them and picture whatever I want. So. Well, I think it's fair to say Jillian has a much larger role in the show than she did in the book, which I do like, but it also means that the writers got to do a lot of stuff that they just wanted to do with her. Maybe uh, the actress couldn't do an American accent. Oh, interesting. (laughs) So they were like, whatever, she's British now. Yeah, hey, whatever works. Because she's great in the role. And then we meet Marcus much earlier than we do in the book, which, again, I love Marcus, so that's great. Uh, In the book, he's already working in Matthew's lab, and when Diana finally goes to visit the lab, that's when we meet him. So I guess it's like episode two technically but now they've given him a backstory about why he's in the lab and all that sort of thing and we get to actually see him being a doctor which i like yeah i think one of the biggest changes is satu yeah in the book we don't meet her until she kidnaps diana right yep which happens gosh not until episodes at the end of episode seven is it six or seven no, no, no. It happens at the very end of episode five. Oh, wow. And then like okay. the actual torture is episode six. Okay. You're right. And so meeting her up front, seeing how she's recruited um, by Peter, kind of learning more about her personality up front, I think is a wonderful change. I, I, yeah. I don't fault them for this at all. It was weird to me the first time I saw it. I was like, what is she doing here? <laughs> um. But I think it's really, really well done. Yeah. I feel like in the books, she she becomes important at the very end of book three. And we only ever really saw her with the kidnapping and then in that moment. So I like that they're showing her more mm-hmm. so that when she is important at the end, it's going to be a bigger, a bigger punch, right. I think. Yeah. But besides that, this whole scene where we meet her makes... No world building sense to me. What is this fire? Is it is it just regular fire? Is it witch fire? What what's the difference? Like we know that rich, witch fire is rare and rarely hasn't been seen in hundreds of years, so we can think that this isn't w- w- witch fire. But then what what is it? And then the ground starts to fall away. Like what is she doing there? Yeah, the it ground falling me. away is weird to me. Like. Where did he go? Did she just bury him alive? That I don't know. I think 
to me, the fire is more reminiscent of, um, so like in later episodes, when we see Diana finally learning how to control her magic and she lights all of the jack-o'-lanterns, I feel like it's that mm, kind right. of magical fire just on a grander scale because Sachi is powerful. Okay, okay, you're right. The books do talk about witches being able to light candles, and that has nothing to do with witch fire. Right. Okay, I forgot about and that. And she does so, say that she has more of an edge because it is the equinox. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking okay. that probably she can't normally do that level of fire, maybe? I feel a lot better about it now. Thank you. Okay, I'm glad. Um, and then, so I sort of talked about this earlier, but the scene with Sean, which obviously was not in the books, I really wish they'd done this somehow with her talking to her actual best friend in the books, Chris. Because mm-hmm. I think they they could have gotten that out. It wouldn't have been weird with Sean. And then we also would have met Chris, who does have a role in the third book. It makes me wonder if we're even going to meet Chris in the third book. It makes me wonder, too. But I hope so, because I love when Miriam shows up and takes over his lab. Right? Chris is just like, okay, sure. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. So we'll just have to wait until season three to see what happens there. Yeah. And then my other sort of problem change, or at least I have a problem with it, is how they've introduced Peter Knox. Like, I, I like it and that he seems creepy and like an asshole but in the books he we kind of hear about him as a like somebody who his um job with the congregation was to work with the human police to cover up any supernatural crimes and murders and that sort of thing and so that humans don't learn about witches and vampires and demons Mm -hmm. and through that we learn about vampire murders that are happening meaning vampires killing humans not not vampires being murdered right anyways in london and that he's sort of helping to hush all that up and that is big foreshadowing for the big bad in book three so i wonder if all of this foreshadowing for book three that we're not getting right now that we would expect to get because one it was in the book and two they've set up some other foreshadowing i wonder if they're planning on doing some of that in season two because there's a lot that happens to characters in season two that we don't see happen in book two Mm -hmm. and so they might be planning on doing something there that's what i figure especially since when they filmed all this they didn't know if they were getting a season two and three Mm -hmm. so why set it up yeah if you're not going to do it and and I guess it would probably be easy enough to work into season two. I just, I just missed it, I suppose. Or I noticed it. Right. No, absolutely. Because it is a, a character dynamic for Peter Knox that helps understand some of what drives him that we mm-hmm. don't get, I, especially even with just episode one, but throughout all of season one, all we know that's driving Peter Knox is his hatred of the vampires. And his wanting to control the bishop women. Yes. But I guess, I guess, uh, coupled with that, him being this sort of police liaison and investigating these murders shows how he would meet Benjamin and get involved with him. Yeah. As it was Benjamin doing the murdering. Right. Yeah. Who we haven't met yet. Yeah. Okay. 
I think that uh, wraps it all up. I think it does. We'd love to know what you think of Matthew and Diana so far. Uh, please use hashtag DesireMadeReal to join our conversation on Twitter. I'm Caitlin, and you can find me at my other show, uh, A Command of Her Own, or on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. And I am Mandy Kay, and you can find this show and all of the other Eloquent Gushing shows at eloquentgushing.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. And you can give me a shout out over on Twitter at Mandy Kay. Join us next week as we talk about episode two, where Matthew goes hunting in Scotland. Until we meet again, remember that with every ending, there is a new beginning. <laughs>